Dr. George Vergolias is a forensic psychologist with over 20 years experience in private and public practice settings. He's an internationally recognized expert in violence risk assessment, threat management, employee absent management, and hostility and dispute mitigation. He is currently the medical director of R3 Continuum, providing custom behavioral health solutions for workplace well-being. R3 Continuum offers tailored disability, fitness for duty, and pre-employment evaluations, workplace violence consultation, threat management, crisis response, security consulting solutions, and more to help organizations and their employees cultivate resilience and productivity. George, welcome to Security Management Highlights, a special edition, Leadership in Action, What I Have Learned. Well, my pleasure to be here, Chuck, and thank you for inviting me. Tell us, uh, tell us about your professional experience, your background. Certainly, uh, and this is a, um, a response that gets longer as the years go by. But uh, <laughs> so my background is a little bit, it's a little bit unorthodox in the security world in that I'm not technically a security professional, um, but I work a great deal with security uh, groups. So my background is in forensic psychology. Um, I got my bachelor's degree at Marquette back in the early 90s went on to get a doctoral degree at the Chicago School, did some additional, uh, did my residency and internship at uh, Duke and the Durham VA Medical Center, and then went on to complete a postdoctoral fellowship um, with Notre Dame uh, in forensic psychology. And in early career, I was um, really just doing a lot of court-based work, uh, diminished capacity assessments, um, not guilty by reason of insanity, um, disposition, uh, waiver, type evaluations for the court system, very traditional forensic roles. And just by the nature of working with juvenile detention, I stepped into, this was around the time of Columbine, and I just stepped into um, evaluating a number of um, would-be school shooters. And very quickly, uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, if you started doing any of that work, you kind of were the resident expert. So that started a number of schools and municipalities calling me and asking for my consultation on threats. And then over the years, that just evolved naturally into working in the corporate environment and applying behavioral threat principles in that setting. So that's kind of an overview, a very high level overview of, uh, of how I got here. Where you wound up was, wasn't really planned. Initially, you planned on going into that field and then it, it, it turned into this, this new avenue for you. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's interesting when we talk about mentoring and um, leadership and career planning. In fact, I was, uh, I was uh, working at the recent GSX conference with a fellow um, colleague of ours, Oscar Villanueva, who put together a um, ASIS mentoring panel. And I was on the panel last year and on this year, and the question often comes up of how do you plan out your career? And for me, um, I realized fairly early on that anything I planned didn't quite work out. <laughs> but when I was open, but when I was open for, to opportunities as they presented themselves, that has always been my trajectory: just being open and flexible, and just following those things that seem of interest to me, um, doing my best to show value in those, and that has opened doors over the years. That is the secret. I've, if somebody asked me 35 years ago, are you going to be a, a radio host about security? Uh, when, <laughs> when I was a rookie policeman, I'd say, what are you talking about? I mean, you got to be open to this stuff to be able to adapt. And that's the secret. That's right. Now, Absolutely. what would you say, you know, when you were, when you started to become upwardly mobile and you kind of had an idea where you were going, what do you think helped you the most? I think for me, especially at the beginning, Chuck, when I was on that trajectory, I had what many people have at that stage is a certain amount of hubris. I, I, I believed I knew more than I knew. Um, I was very book smart. I studied, I worked hard, but 
in early management, early leadership, I didn't have as much applied knowledge um, as I do now. Um, and what I had at that time is I had a very good mentor that had a really nice way of supporting me, supporting my goals, supporting my interests, but at the same time, properly putting me in my place <laughs> and made me realize that, uh, um, that I still had a lot to learn and that I needed to be patient and I needed to continue to work and develop a lot more experience. Uh, that was really critical for me at that stage. A defining moment in your career? I would say, yeah, I would, because I was at a point, again, this is just my own personal pathway, but I was at a point where I think I was feeling a bit dejected because I was not moving up. Um, and, and he really put into context that, you know, a career is a long trajectory. is It's a multi-year trajectory. Um, and the importance of being patient and continuing to find those experiences that are going to deepen me, not for just next month or next year, but for years to come. So tell me, let's go the opposite way. Tell me about a career setback you've had and how you dealt with that. It's interesting. I have, you know, this might be the shrink in me, but I have a way of taking setbacks and reframing them <laughs> into positives, um, which is, you know, very um, annoying to my children because <laughs> every time they have a complaint, <laughs> I, I reframe that for them. I think one for me is early on, very early on, um, I applied to the Bureau of Prisons and to the FBI. And I, I made it pretty far in both processes um, actually, I had an offer from the Bureau of Prisons. I, I was a little bit behind in my application to the FBI. I don't know what would have happened with that uh, because I, I withdrew at the time. Well, I'm sorry, the Bureau of Prisons declined me at that time. And then I ended up withdrawing my application for the FBI. Um, and I felt like that was a big setback. At the time, I wanted to do a lot of correctional work, um, work with the court system. And what it did is it opened me up to an opportunity to then begin working with juvenile detention, which led to schools, which then led to corporate environments a few years after that. So that was, it clearly was a setback in my mind at the time, but I didn't realize until much later that it opened up another trajectory for me, which turned out quite well. That's not like a setback at all. I, I agree with the way you yeah. rephrase it. That's fantastic. So tell me about, yeah. so like what, what might be the most important lesson you learned in your career? You know, how did that prove to be invaluable? This was something, so I'm 50 now, and I, I, I didn't really learn, I wish I learned this much younger. I don't think I learned this until my early 40s. And that is the distinction or the difference between having control and having influence. Um, I had thought for years that, um, you know, you need to move up, you need to get the title, you need to get the sanctioned authority, you need to get people under you. And then is when you can really make things happen. It was a very linear um, for a kind of organizational way of approaching um, mobility. And what I, it took me a number of years to realize that um, one may not have control, but still might have the most respected opinion in the room. And if you're in the right room, that could have tremendous influence on the direction that a client moves or a company moves or a policy moves. And it took me a long time to realize that. And I'm still realizing that. I mean, there's still levels of understanding with that. But I think that's perhaps one of the most important things uh, that I struggled with early on that I'm embracing uh, more and more as I get older. Tell me about the greatest piece of advice you think you received in your career. And, and you probably received a lot of advice. Does something stand out individually? You know, it does. And it was very early career. So very early in grad school, I was very cliche 
And I went to my advisor back in my graduate program and explained, this is what I want to do. I want to have an office. I want to just see people that are struggling with, with various types of mental illness. And it's a, it's a noble profession. And he looked at me um, based on my experience at that time, limited experience. And it was pretty funny. His name was Dr. John Krasinski, actually. And he said, you know, George, um, you need to do one thing. And I said, what's that? And he goes, you need to see crazy people. <laughs> He's like, you, you literally need to see what severe mental illness looks like. What it, what it kind of feels like to be in its presence, how you engage people, how you understand them when they're in a mental health crisis, how you help them move through such a crisis. Um, because only then would you have a deeper appreciation for the whole gamut of human behavior um, and human difficulties that people might present with. And that's going to help you in all walks of your life and wherever your career brings you. And it was not a comfort zone. It was not something I wanted to do at that time, but it was really good advice. And, and, and the second piece of it was, he really gave me the message that you've got this, you can handle this. Even if you feel like you're not ready for this, you can tap into that resilience that you have and you could navigate through this and you can learn from this. And that was pretty um, a pretty powerful message that I continued to carry through my career Whenever I have a difficulty, wherever I have a comfort zone uh, that I don't like, I, I kind of reflect back on those events and they bring me um, a lot of strength. Is there one thing you might go back and change? Do it over again to either change a path or make something better? Or uh, Yeah, that's, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, occasionally, and just this year at the GSX conference, somebody had asked me that. And it's always, it's a great question. It's always a tough one for me to answer because I am... I am of the mind that the pathway, you know, wherever you go, there you are. And the pathway that has led me here is the pathway that needed to lead me here. Um, but that's, but certainly there are things that I wish I would have um, done more of. And, and, and one thing is I wish I would have earlier on, I wish I would have explored more areas of learning instead of getting so pigeonholed in my early career. I was fairly pigeonholed in a very traditional forensic psychology focus. Um, and it wasn't until my mid to late thirties that I began exploring more um, security, corporate security, working in security environments around threat and risk. Um, and I just wish that's something I would have been more open to early on. Who would you say has been the most influential person in your life and career? And I know that's a tough one, but uh, sometimes these things pop out to people and they, they just know it right away. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly two things that come to mind are my parents. So, you know, my, my, my mother was the oldest um, daughter of a family, Irish family, Irish German family who grew up in the projects of Chicago. Um, actually, they grew up, she grew up in the Mother Cabrini housing project, which then became Cabrini Green years later. Um, she essentially raised her siblings and, and um, kind of help provide them in terms of mothering types of roles. And, and my father, who also came from a very difficult backgrounds, was uh, trained as a Marine, fought in Korea. Um, and they both came from backgrounds that were quite rigid. Um, in fact, it's interesting when my father um, asked my mother uh, to marry him, uh, he was kicked out of the house because she wasn't Greek. <laughs> um, and he comes from a very traditional Greek background. And they kind of had to navigate those cultural issues, um, he had to navigate some difficult experiences in the war. And he always, both of them always had a sense of kind of uh, vivaciousness or uh, vitality um, and a sense of integrity with which how they interacted with people on the street 
uh, in the neighborhood, and they didn't really give favoritism. Whether somebody was the president of a company or the janitor, they were always respectful. Um, and that's something I always, I don't always uh, meet that high mark, but that's something I certainly strive for in my personal life. Um, on the professional side, I had a mentor a number of years ago. Um, uh, his name was Dr. Wendell Carpenter. Um, we, we have since lost touch. This was back in Chicago a number of years ago. Um, and he was just instrumental in having a way of everybody that was in his presence felt completely attended to, completely focused. He was completely um, anchored into the present moment when he was engaging with you, which is another thing that I have continued to aspire to do. Don't always do it well, um, but has taught me a great deal about really being respectful and listening to people. And it has helped me in my career. And when I'm doing an assessment or an investigation, being very attentive to all the small details that can be um, really instrumental in an assessment or an investigation that other people who are just blazing through and trying to get information may often miss or look over. So I would say those are the, the big experiences that stand out. Let's switch up to uh, leadership, talk about leadership. Define mm -hmm. it for me uh, in a personal way, not your uh, <laughs> clinical way uh, as you're used to doing, but you know, what does it mean to you sure. personally? Yeah, these are good questions. Um, when I think of leadership, I, 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 I think of example, right? Lead, lead by example, demonstrate to others, not exactly how to be in the world or how to be in their role, but helping them find their own kind of pathway to do that. And then giving them the space to explore a bit. So part of it is setting direction and leading, you know, the, the typical phrase for leading, but a big part of it is really seeing into that individual and helping to help them differentiate what do they want versus what do they need and how do you help them achieve that? Um, I heard it described a number of years ago by a psychologist. It, it's like looking into the acorn and seeing the oak tree that it one day will become and then helping that oak tree become the particular oak tree that it needs to become. That is what he described as true mentoring. And I, I see that also as a very good definition of leadership. I think it's an excellent definition. Uh, you know, to me, it's a verb, right? It's not a noun. It's not yes. a title. It's a verb. Do you think these skills are learned or genetic? And with your background, I expect a very interesting uh, answer on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I think it's a bit of both. But what's interesting is I think there's a huge genetic angle to that because um, I'm going to go back to the acorn analogy, right? Uh, an acorn, no matter how much it wants to become a maple, it cannot be a maple and it can't be a cypress and it can't be an evergreen. It's going to be an oak tree. Now, what kind of oak tree, um, how big, how short, whether it bends, whether it, um, it has a nice big canopy or a narrow canopy is completely influenced by the, by the environment, right? Uh, which I compare to learning. So I do think that leaders do have a natural genetic um, disposition to take risks, to have enough, um, you can say confidence, maybe we even say a touch of narcissism to believe that I'm good enough that others should lead you know, or follow me. And I have a right and, and a purpose to lead them, um, a sense of mission, a sense of passion for what they do. And I don't know if you could learn those things. The best leaders take that natural genetic disposition and then by learning, they sharpen it and they refine it. Um, so I do think there's a learning component 
But at its true core, I do think there's a strong kind of um, nature or genetic aspect to it. Interesting answer. And let me segue into the next one. How long do you feel you've been in a leadership role? When I got this question, I realized that it's been since I was, you know, 12 years old. I've noticed of 14 kids. So I've literally been in a leadership role most of my life. So it's not necessarily career. And so to your point about it being genetic, do you feel this goes back into your past before you started your professional career? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, and I, I completely can see how the oldest of 14, <laughs> whether you liked it or not, you were forced into that, certainly. Like um, your mother, I was your mom. Yeah, yeah. Right, that's right, that's right. Um, I, I do think I do think there's formal leadership, you know, where somebody ordains you as a leader with a title, right, or puts you in a role. But then there's the informal, where you just step into a leadership role. And I see this on sports teams all the time. Your example of, you know, you were somewhat ordained as a leader because you were the oldest in your family, assumed some responsibility in that regard. And what I see in sports teams that's interesting, and, and I coach I coach both my daughter and my son, um, they're soccer teams. Um, and they're, a bit, they're young still, 11 and 9. They both play competitive soccer. And it's interesting to see that sometimes the ordained captain is not the leader, but somebody else steps up on the team and shows an effort level shows a certain motivational, uh, shows a degree of support for fellow teammates when they falter, when they um, are down. And they just assume that informal leadership role. So I actually believe that I, I did show that at times in my past, playing basketball, playing soccer, uh, involved in other groups and so on, where I stepped up into that role and it felt natural. And yet there were other groups that I didn't step into that role. I just kind of, you know, I, I kind of um, recessed to the background. And I'm not sure why. Some some went one way and some went the other way. But I do think there's that informal aspect to it for sure. What do you wish you had known before taking your first management position or leadership position? Oh, God, good questions. You know what pops uh, pops um, right in my mind? Because this is another thing I didn't truly, truly appreciate until, God, almost mid-30s. Um, is to some degree, I would even say to a larger degree, new leaders and even some seasoned leaders in the end really don't know what they're doing. <laughs> um, I remember graduating from grad school. So here I am, doctor of psychology, got my you know doctoral degree in my hand. I'm walking out of the, um, of the ceremony. I'm starting a job the next week. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. And, and, and if I don't have a clue what I'm doing after all these years of intense study, how am I ever? And then it was a few years later that a mentor said to me, no one really knows when they start. Everyone's kind of faking it a little bit until they make it. The key is if you do the homework and you do your work and you understand the nature of the work you're doing and the content and the focus and you're open-minded and you're, and you're willing to put in the hard work, that's where that leadership kind of catches up. And I wish I would have known that because early on for me, I had a lot of anxiety of not knowing every single answer that came across my desk. And I, and, and I don't operate the best when I'm feeling overly stressed about those micromanagement decisions. I operate the best when I'm kind of into a flow um, and I interact with people better when I'm into a flow. Um, and it took me a number of years to realize that, um, that that degree of confidence isn't just given to you on day one and it takes a while to develop. You know, leaders tend to appoint other leaders, right? And I, and I, think, I think they know that while you're not there at the start, you will be able to achieve that. And that is one of the key components of leadership that people can can evolve to that position. And really, there's not a handbook Absolutely. on it. Like you said, you just got to do it. 
So what do you think Absolutely. was the most difficult leadership skill to learn? We have our, our you know, genetic type of uh, leadership, but what, what, what did you find hard to get a handle on when somebody tried to teach you something? One of the, one of the things I struggled with, and, and there's times that I'll fall back into this pattern, not often, and I catch it much more quickly than I used to, is, you know, there's listening to somebody, right? Where you kind of hear what there's, well, there's listening and then there's hearing. I was always decent at listening, but I wasn't always really good at hearing, like hearing deeply what somebody's trying to convey to me. There's times, especially when I'm feeling, still today I do this. Um, again, I keep it under wraps better, but there's times when if I'm rushed, if I have multiple time demands or pressures on me, I want to kind of move quickly and get things done. And it's important just to take a breath and slow down and really attend to the person that's in front of me, hear what they're saying. I mean, listen to what they're saying, but also hear it. And then we could kind of turn that into a productive dialogue that is most much more likely to solve the problem that is facing us. So I still have to slow down a lot and, and, and find, uh, catch myself at those moments. So give us some of your best practices in leadership, maybe some lessons you can share with the audience. Yeah. In one of the first ones, and it's a bit cliche because I am a shrink, is um, <laughs> you got to take care of your own house. You know, you got to take care of, I mean, again, I'm not the Dalai Lama. <laughs> Very few of us are. Um, but you really have to have a sense of a kind of balance and stress management if you are truly going to be there for other people and help guide them along a path especially when they're struggling or they're stressed. And so I, you know, I meditate. Um, I like to, I like to weight lift. I like to fly fish. I like to do different things that balance me out and help me kind of come back to the work every day with focus um, and energy. So that's, that's the first thing. The other thing I think that's important is to be, be mindful that people come to us as leaders with many different needs and many different agendas. And I don't mean agendas in a negative way. Sometimes they just want to be heard. Other times they need a very pragmatic problem to be solved. And it's important to try to read that and understand what different people on our team need, what they want, and then how do we, how do we help them get there? In a way, it's like raising children, right? They have different needs. They have different specialties. They have different um, um, weaknesses. And how do we kind of tap into those to help them really thrive in the role that they're uh, moving on? You're looking at yourself from the position of one of your employees, coworkers, subordinates, whatever you want to say. What might they say is a trait or a skill they would like you to improve upon, right, or sustain? Hmm. The To improve upon... I kind of would say time management. And what I mean by that is, and, 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 and by, you know, the nature of my role as a medical director and at the executive level, you just do get very busy. It's just the nature of it. That said, um, I could manage that better. I can, one of the difficulties I have is I tend to work in spurts of flow. I have never been a very militaristic uh, time management kind of guy. And in some ways that works very well for me, but it doesn't always work for others because the way that kind of gets in the way at times with my team is they'll come to me with something and I'm feeling some pressure on myself or maybe externally imposed to quickly move through the problem solution so I can get on and get back to these other things that I'm working on. And that doesn't always work for the team or for you know individual members that um, I'm working with. Um, so I have to catch that. You know, I have to be mindful. So I think I think they would give me very good feedback, meaning candid feedback on that. 
Um, and they'd be absolutely right about that. So the, the sustainability piece, I think what my team would like to say is, um, or what they would say is, um, I give them a lot of support in terms of guidance. Um, I don't beat them up when they falter. I want people to falter because if they don't take risks, if they're not pushing the envelope, then they're being in a highly comfortable zone uh, that isn't going to move our services and the offerings and the value that we provide. Uh, it's not going to move us forward. So I do want risks taken. And at the same time, my whole view of leadership and management is to give people the, the guidance, the direction and the tools they need. And then most importantly, get out of their way, uh, especially at a higher level of, of, uh, of professionalism and career trajectory, kind of get out of their way and let them do their job. And I think I do that. I, do, I think I do that pretty well. I do not micromanage, and I give them the guidance that they need to kind of do their role, knowing when to come back to me. I'm there for them, but knowing they could take some risks and really flex their uh, development muscle. Let's uh, let's talk about mentoring. Did you have mentors in your career, and uh, what was their impact? I did. I did. I had. I had. I would say three. I had a number of great teachers. I mean, I just just handfuls of great teachers and influencers. But I had two really, really prominent, and, and I would even say a third mentor uh, um, in my career. One, two were quite early. And, and I'm not gonna kind of go through all of the, the, the nuanced details. One is the gentleman I mentioned earlier already, Dr. Carpenter. Another is Dr. Bill Bruinsmo, who was a teacher of mine in grad school and then went on to be my postdoctoral um, supervisor. and. I think the value that they provided, I think I mentioned earlier, Dr. Carpenter, was a sense of integrity and then the sense of presence. The value that I got from Dr. Brinsma was everything he did, he approached it with a question of how do I bring value? Not what can they do for me or who's respecting me or not respecting me or why is somebody doing or not doing what I said or told them to do? It's how can I bring value to this discussion, to this service, to this workday, to this meeting. And he instilled that in everything that we did. And he was driven by this deep sense of, of, of service to others. That, that He lived very deeply in his personal life, but he also brought that every single day to the work. And that stuck with me. I mean, there's some days where I feel like phoning it in. I mean, I'm human, but, but that really stuck with me. That sense of, if I'm not loving what I'm doing, and if I'm not feeling a deep sense of wanting to do it, a deep sense of purpose and service with it, um, it's time to find something else to do. That was that was really helpful and stuck with me all these years. Help me tie mentoring and navigating your career into the security industry because it's it's a big big industry, a big vertical. And and how can we yeah. help navigate young people's careers through mentoring? It's it's a it's a great question, and it's something that I truly believe is a two way street. I don't think mentoring is is something passive that a mentor gives or does for the mentee and suddenly they start learning. So I think it's both, we as more senior professionals need to be open to offering the guidance and wisdom that we have because learning is great and books are great and webinars are great and online learning is wonderful, but none of that's wisdom. Wisdom comes by doing things and usually it comes by doing things badly, right? And then learning from that and then adapting, right? And growing and, uh, and then learning from the mistakes we've made. So I think, I think as kind of mid and upper career folks, I, I think it's important that we are open to mentoring people and showing them guidance on the one hand. And as for early career folks, I, I encourage them to be open to seeking out mentors. 
and seeking out those relationships that they feel that they can learn from and learn wisdom from in particular. And I think, I think both of those go together. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the security industry? I mean, with the introduction of, of psychology more and more into this profession, we are seeing some things we didn't really see before as far as behavior and prediction and things like that. It's, uh, it, it, it moves so quickly now. Indeed. And it's a great, it's a great question, Chuck. And, and I think that's part of my unique bias as well. I mean, I do not have a deep, uh, you know, I'm on kind of the outskirts of the security industry in terms of my training, but what I'm seeing is our understanding of behavioral antecedents to troubling actions, insider threats, espionage, um, extortion, um, robbery, uh, threats of violence, workplace violence, harassment, bullying, all of the above, um, as well as the psychological dynamics that go behind that are becoming increasingly important to be aware of when we're trying to mitigate these issues. And I see that moving um, a lot more into the security field. At the same time, for traditional forensic folks like me, forensic psychologists, psychiatrists, if we're going to be in this space and deal with threat management, hostility management, um, workplace violence and risk mitigation, we have to develop a deeper understanding of traditional skill sets that have been in security, such as you know investigative interviewing, uh, an, uh, an array of deeper uh, types of investigation procedures and methodologies, um, background checks, how to utilize, um, you know, uh, understanding cyber, understanding social media. These are things that if you go back 15 years ago, we just didn't, even 10 years ago, we just didn't really consider. It was all about the psychology and now it's not. And as kind of a testament to this, when you look at the um, ATAP, the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, you will see that it is equally comprised now of both security and behavioral health and, and, and a good portion of legal people that come to these groups, are involved in that guild. And even the, um, the certified threat manager exam has content from all of those areas, security, legal, and the traditional kind of behavioral health risk assessment arena. So I think that's getting it right. I think that's starting to realize that to operate in this space, you just can't be traditionally siloed in one of those areas. You need to understand some of these other areas that these overlap into. Yeah, I agree. Fortification is the old mm -hmm. old rule. And it has to. it's yes. all about behavior in the end. All about behavior. That's so right. what advice might you give our podcast listeners seeking career opportunities uh, entering the security industry? I mean, certainly your field is, is exploding and expanding. And I think, I think many people in security wouldn't think of that vector as a place to start. But boy, what an interesting field you have. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is. You know, it's interesting. If people, early career, if they, if they definitely know they want to be in that security role, I, I don't necessarily suggest they have to go get a doctoral degree. I mean, that's a huge time commitment. Uh, it's a huge monetary commitment. But there are a number of wonderful online courses that one can take to deepen their understanding of um, psychological and behavioral principles behind threat assessment and threat mitigation. Um, so that's one thing to think about. The other thing, and this is more broad, Chuck, but I would say early career, if I had one piece of advice, it would be be open in those first few years, whether it's three years, five years, seven years, be open to as many experiences as you, as you can get in front of to expand your understanding of the field. And like you said, it is a huge field and it's growing um, exponentially in terms of the applications 
of what security has to do. I was listening, by the way, to um, Kathy Lanier from, I believe, two months ago. You had um, interviewed her. And she had a wonderful point where she said that um, even in um, crime prevention, the technology is leapfrogging itself. And it's so, you know, what used to be a cycle of knowledge, you know, recertification every few years is now happening every few weeks or every few months. And in the same way, we're seeing that in understanding and keeping up with the various fields, um, be it behavioral health, um, you know, risk in workplace violence mitigation or security. And so I think the importance early career is just to be open to different experiences because at that point in your career, you may not know what you really like, or you may think you like one thing, and then you're exposed to something else that you didn't even know existed, and that's eye-opening. And then it, before you know it, it becomes a lifelong career. So I would keep that openness. George, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've learned so much, and thank you very much for coming on Security Management Highlights Special Edition. My pleasure. It's been a real uh, enjoyment for me as well, Chuck. Thank you for the invite.